You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, the bloodstained face of a child, this time five-year-old Omran Duknish, pulled from a damaged building after Syrian government or a Russian airstrike, has again focused world attention on the tragedy of Syria, notably the battle for Aleppo. Our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen, on the significance of the divided city and the battle for it. Eight months of political paralysis in Spain may at last have been broken. But will Prime Minister Mariana Rajoy be able to win a confidence vote on August 30th? Our correspondent in Madrid, Guy Hedgeco, on the machinations. Heard the one about the Chinese schoolboy scrawling graffiti on the temple of Luxor? Some 120 million Chinese people travelled overseas in 2015. A most welcome boost to tourism revenues everywhere. But bad and abusive behaviour is also on the rise. Behaviour that, as Clifford Coonan, our Beijing correspondent, reports, is being increasingly commented on back at home. With more than a million civilians still living in a city cut in half and surrounded on all sides by competing armies, Aleppo is Syria's most acute humanitarian crisis. Michael Jansen, why has the city become so central to the Syrian war? And what are conditions like for civilians in each part of the city? Well, Aleppo was uh, Syria's largest city and uh, most populous, and also its commercial hub. And it, it has been a symbol of, of Syria for generations. It is also uh, one of the oldest settled cities on the face of the globe. Um, Syria has been fighting over Aleppo since 2012. Um, the city was divided at that time between insurgents and the government. It is more or less equally divided, although the sectors are not neatly cut off from one another with a straight line. In fact, they are in rather images like yin and yang, um, embracing one another with a long um, front line, which is very dangerous. Um, in the Western government-held sectors of Aleppo, there are about 1.2 million people, plus another 300,000 displaced persons who were displaced a second or third time during the recent fighting and who have moved into the center of Aleppo. In the eastern insurgent health area, there are between 250,000 to 300,000 people, plus the fighters. Conditions there appear to be far, far worse. Conditions there are very bad. Uh, there is some uh, material being smuggled in, but it is essentially uh, besieged and cut off. Whereas the government-held part of Aleppo is... Um, operating rather normally, according to a source who left there yesterday. And this source also told me uh, that between 9 and 12 in the morning, there was a convoy of uh, food and um, other supplies entering Aleppo. And the road actually had been uh, cut off uh, for anyone trying to leave. Um, also, there were army reinforcements coming into Aleppo. There still is fighting in the southwest part of the, the city between the army and um, fighters who have come from the northwestern province of Idlib 
to try to break the siege. They did break the siege in early August, but then the army uh, managed to close up uh, the line that they opened. So the eastern part of the city is very substantially encircled once again. Yes, it's uh, largely encircled. And um, the United Nations has been pressing very hard for a 48-hour ceasefire by all sides um, to bring in food supplies to both sides. The people who are in need in the western side of Aleppo are these displaced people in particular because they have been forced to leave their homes or homes that they settled into and everything else behind once again and to move into the center of the city. So they are, as I say, refugees who needed help um, in terms of food and other items uh, and medical care. And this is true of the citizens who are in the eastern side of the city. Um, At at the moment, uh, people in Aleppo are a bit nervous because of the Turkish involvement in the fighting in the north. Uh, There is some concern that the Turks may try to move into the Aleppo area as well as uh, the border towns uh, north of Aleppo. But the reality is, at the moment, we're, we're talking about a, a stalemate with neither side capable of inflicting a decisive victory on the other. Yes, that's true. And I think, uh, I, 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 in my view at least, I think that the government's idea is to uh, compel uh, eastern um, Aleppo to agree to the kind of uh, arrangements that have been made in other areas of Syria, um, uh, whereas the fighters stay and they don't use their weapons. The population stays, the doors are open for supplies, but they uh, agree to what can be called government control of the area from outside. Um, This has happened in many places, uh, especially around Damascus, and um, it has worked. Um, in these places. Um, The problem is, of course, you have the fighters still inside. And uh, the local populations don't really like to have the foreign fighters remain. They prefer to have only Syrians if they want to stay. Now, the Syrian government and the Russians have been accused in recent days of using incendiary bombs, uh, which can cause absolutely horrific uh, injuries, like those inflicted by Napalm. The evidence is pretty convincing that they did. Well, this I, I cannot confirm or you know, uh, deny whether they did or not. They've been using all kinds of bombs. Uh, the other side uh, uses mortars, um, which they freely uh, fling into western Aleppo. And they also create their own barrel bombs um, made in gas canisters and use a catapult to throw them in. Both sides are uh, hitting the populations of the other side um, indiscriminately. And and hospitals and and schools. And and, hospitals. Um, In western Aleppo, there are two hospitals which remain, government hospitals, which remain in operation. And I don't know how many private hospitals in western Aleppo. Also, the schools are working, the universities are working, the market is working, and the government is working. 
um, in the eastern side, uh, some things have been working. There were some small markets which were operational uh, early during this siege, but I think uh, these may have had to close down because of lack of uh, supplies. Now, the, the whole battle for Aleppo is really testing the U.S. approach uh, towards Syria and opening up and showing up contradictions in it, both a cautious military intervention and diplomacy, uh, which is being stretched close to breaking point and forcing it into a choice which long tried to avoid between effectively endorsing the Assad regime or backing jihadis who are sympathetic to al-Qaeda. Yes, well, this is the problem. The United States still hasn't made up its mind what to do. And... Um, one of the the big problems over this ceasefire, uh, which I was uh, told by this source who left Aleppo yesterday, is that on the one hand, the government is not in a hurry to have a ceasefire under UN auspices. And on the other hand, the, the rebels also don't want a ceasefire because they are still trying to improve their positions. Um, and the Russians have said that they are willing to deliver the government whereas the other side has not delivered the insurgents. And although the insurgents say that they are willing to go for a ceasefire, this is not happening on the ground. There's no kind of um, lessening of military activity on the ground. And one of the uh, developments on the ground has been the uh, distancing of al-Qaeda's Syrian affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra from from al-Qaeda. In fact, it's it's severed its links according according to itself and has changed its name to Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, or Syrian Conquest Front. Do we take this this manoeuvring seriously? And what effect does this have on on calculations about who uh, the Americans should be supporting in in the uh, fight? Well, I mean, the new Jabhat Fatah al-Sham is uh, actually. Uh, in fact, just a, a new name for uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, before they decided to make this so-called break, a lot of senior people from al-Qaeda apparently arrived in Idlib, where it has its um, stronghold, and um, started taking control, and uh, both on the ideological side and the military side. This group is the strongest uh, military formation in Syria uh, amongst the insurgents. And it is allied to Ahrar al-Sham, which is the second strongest. And they formed this army of conquest. And they are the ones who are behind the current offensive in Aleppo, uh, which so far has just reached stalemate rather than success. They have promised to liberate uh, Western Aleppo from the government, but I think this is very unlikely. And are they potential allies for the Americans? Well, I mean, if the Americans want to ally themselves with Al Qaeda, uh, I think it was it's a rather dubious alliance. So the severing uh, of the link is cosmetic. Yeah, the severing the link definitely is cosmetic, and these people are being funded by the Saudis, the Qataris, and also the Turks who have been funneling their people across the uh, Turkish border into Syria. And recently, um, Islamic State elements bombed a bus, which was crossing the border with some of these uh, Nusra elements 
um, and kill 30 of the people on the bus. Uh, Nusra and Islamic State are rivals and enemies. Uh, sometimes they cooperate, but mostly they uh, fight each other. A horrendously complicated uh, uh, jigsaw puzzle there in, in Aleppo. Thank you very much, Michael. Most welcome. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. We've had two general elections and eight months of gridlock in Spanish politics, with PM Mariano Rajoy of the Conservative People's Party unable to form a government. But last week, Rajoy acceded to a list of demands, or appeared to, from the Ciudadanos Party and finally agreed to submit himself to a confidence vote in order... Uh, to avoid the country's third general election in a year. Now, it's not yet clear he will win, but Guy Hatchko, the deal with Ciudadanos appears to break the logjam. Rajoy may be about to lose his caretaker status. And what, what's the uh, six-point list of demands about? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it does seem fairly significant that there has been at least some preliminary agreements over these issues. And the issues they're talking about are, I mean, they're very broad. It's the economy, economic growth, um, job creation, which has been a big problem in Spain with unemployment around 20% still in the wake of the economic crisis. Also, the welfare states so of health and education and unemployment benefits. And then the other big area uh, they're going to be talking about, they have been talking about, is transparency, uh, regeneration and clamping down on corruption. Those have been big issues over the last three or four years, not least of all because the, the, the party of Mariana Rajoy um, itself has been plagued by a lot of corruption uh, cases. Um, and so the other parties have been pressuring for, for increased uh, measures to, to clamp down on corruption. And Chudodanos, when it emerged, uh, really, it emerged as a sort of clean party uh, um, on the conservative right. But basically, the, the issue of corruption was, was centred to, center to, to its programme. That's right. I mean, one of the difficulties with Ciudadanos is actually to pin down where it is on the political spectrum. It, it defines itself as a centrist liberal party um, and bristles if it's described as anything else. Um, however, it does look like the most obvious partner for the popular party. Um, and many uh, on the left say it's simply the, the youth wing of the popular party or the People's Party of Mariana Rajoy. Um, but having said that, in, in the past, it has formed um, a governing alliances on a, on a, a local level with the socialists. Um, and it looked like it was uh, possibly going to even help form a government with the socialists back in the spring um, after the, the December election. Um, so Ciudadanos is it's difficult to pin down ideologically, but it does have this big uh, drive to clamp down on corruption. Um, also, it, it presents itself as very business friendly. Um, it wants to cut down on unnecessary layers of the state, which it says in Spain have become bloated. Um, and it, it, it says it's uh, socially liberal as well. So it's sort of a mixture of uh, policies somewhere around the centre. On, on the economy, it's somewhere to the right. Um, but it does look like a fairly obvious partner for Rajoy's party. Now, this represents a U-turn, significant U-turn by Rajoy. Well, I mean, we have had this, this stalemate for the last eight months or so. Um, Rajoy did seem had been holding out. He, I mean, he, he really has been... Um, keeping his cards very close to his chest ever since that first election back in December. You know, he hasn't wanted to face um, a confidence vote in Congress. 
to become a new prime minister if he's not guaranteed of winning it. That's been one of the big problems here. Now, he's not guaranteed winning this, uh, this vote in the next few days. But you're right. It does seem to be something of a U-turn, the fact that he's simply said he's willing to face the vote. Um, so the fact that he's talking to Ciudadanos with a view to not necessarily forming a governing coalition, but getting its support specifically for this, uh, this confidence motion next week, that is significant. Um, and certainly um, that would seem to be some kind of change in the stance of Rajoy. But even with Giordanos, the People's Party will be seven votes short of, of a majority in the Congress. And the socialists uh, who are crucial to this are refusing at the moment even to abstain on, on, on the vote. They're, they're determined, as I see it, to remove uh, Rajoy and um, they won't do a deal without him going. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, they've said that they will not... Uh vote in any way that would ease um, Rajoy's passage to becoming prime minister again. Um, so, you know, for example, on, on, on Twitter, they've been putting out this uh, hashtag, no is no. That is, they're saying, we will vote no in the, uh, the, motion, in the motion next week, in the vote next week. Um, we will not even abstain. An abstention by the socialists would be enough to allow Rajoy to become prime minister. And the socialists are saying, we won't even abstain. Um, we are opposing him. Now, I think they're doing that because um, even though most Spaniards don't want to see a third election um, because of this political stalemate, um, the socialist-owned voters um, are obviously unhappy at the idea of seeing uh, Rajoy, a conservative, in power for another four years. He's been there for eight or uh, – sorry, he's been there for four already. Um, they don't want to see him continue as prime minister. He's someone who's introduced a lot of cuts um, in health and education. He's got all these corruption scandals. He's a very unpopular figure, um, particularly so um, among voters on the left. So – the socialist leader, Pedro Sanchez, is acutely aware of this. He's acutely aware of his own position, which is rather tenuous. He could be facing a leadership challenge in the next few months himself. So I think he doesn't want to be seen as a hypocrite, someone who allowed Rajoy to continue as prime minister. But is there a possibility that Rajoy will stand aside? What's the mood in his own party? Well, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the, the party is focusing very much on trying to woo the socialists, saying you don't have to vote in favour of us, just give us this abstention. Um, and, it, and as you say, it wouldn't, they wouldn't require the votes of the whole socialist party, all, all the socialists in Congress. It would just be um, a handful of them. Um, so what could happen possibly next week, although a lot of people think it's unlikely, is that you simply see a handful of socialists abstaining and then the, the, the bulk of the party voting against. Um, but alternatively, we, we might simply see that there's a socialist voting against, as they have promised. Um, and in that case, um, Rajoy would have to look elsewhere for support um, to become prime minister. It's not impossible he could get that support um, from other parties. For example, the, the, the Basque nationalists have five seats um, in Congress. Um, and in the past, Basque nationalists have helped um, the Conservatives govern in Spain. So that's not out of the question. Um, the problem there is that you get into a very difficult situation with Ciudadanos, who are very opposed to Basque nationalism and Catalan nationalism. It looks like they would be unlikely to want to get into bed uh, with Basque nationalists. So you have all these sort of subplots working, working against each other in many cases uh, to do with regional politics and national politics. And that's why 
uh, Spanish politics has become uh, so complicated over the last few months and why it's become so difficult to find a solution to this. And indeed, and the situation in the Catalan parliament uh, is making things even more complicated um, with, with the parliament voting by a majority to push forward on independence, but the courts telling them that their resolution is, does, has no legal standing. Uh, I, I suppose there's no chance whatsoever that Rajoy will get any votes there. Well, that's right. That's, that looks very unlikely at the moment. I mean, again, in the past, um, Rajoy's party, the Conservatives, have had the support of Catalan nationalists um, to help them govern. That seems extraordinary now when you look at the sort of hostility between um, his own party and um, Catalan nationalists up in Barcelona at the moment. Um, that, that hostility created by uh, the independence drive. So... That looks unlikely, but at the moment, anything looks possible in Spanish politics um, because there are so many factors at play. Um, and as you, as you say, the, the, the Catalan nationalists are pushing ahead or trying to push ahead with this independence project, and they're actually being able to take advantage of the fact that there isn't a permanent government in place in Madrid. There is no Spanish uh, government essentially in place which is able to carry out reforms and actively counter uh, the, the Catalan independence drive. So they're kind of taking uh, advantage of that at the moment. And in terms of the, of the emerging, the, what has been a significant emergence of the far-left uh, Unidos Podemos party, um, they're not really in the game at all at the moment. They're on the sidelines, is that right? They, they are very much so. I mean, I think one um, political commentator yesterday said that they're sort of lying next to the pool, sort of not doing anything until the end of the summer was how he put it. Um, and that really sums it up. I mean, in the wake of the, the June uh, repeated election in which they got a disappointing result, um, they didn't overtake the socialists, they didn't become the main force on the left, uh, they remained in third place. Um, they, they, they've been very much on the sidelines because the assumption is that the next Spanish government is very likely to be uh, on the right or centre-right or somewhere in that territory. It's probably not going to be on the left. Now, having said that, Podemos um, and the United Left, those two parties together forming um, Unidos Podemos, they're insisting that there is a possibility for a leftist coalition to govern Spain still. Now, you look at the numbers, that is possible, but it gets very, very complicated because they would have to gang up with uh, all kinds of smaller parties, nationalist parties, um, and the negotiations would be an absolute nightmare. That looks very unlikely. Again, it can't be discounted altogether. But it, it means that Podemos have been very much on the sidelines. I think they're going to wait to see what happens um, over the coming weeks, see what happens with this vote. Um, and it could be that they simply end up as um, an opposition party. Um, but it's unlikely that we're going to see them governing at the moment. And your bet for next week, will Spain have a government? I would bet that uh, Spain will not have a government next week, um, but Rajoy could try and go through another confidence motion a few weeks later. That's still possible before new elections are called. I think that the idea of third elections, and third elections which could take place on Christmas Day, um, to cap it all, it, it's so abhorrent to most Spaniards that I think the pressure is going to be mounting on, on politicians here um, to, to prevent that from happening. Thank you, Guy. You're listening to the Irish Times. The global tourism and travel sector is expected to grow by about 3% in 2016, faster than predicted growth uh, in, the, in the economy. And this is largely driven by increasing numbers of travellers from Asian countries, including China and India. China is now the world's largest outbound travel market, and it's great for shops like Brown Thomas. 
But to the increasing embarrassment of many compatriots back home, some Chinese tourists are behaving badly while abroad. Online videos of a Chinese tourist taking a bath in the canal in Venice is a case in point. Uh, and a feeding frenzy at a Thai buffet also didn't show up the, uh, the Chinese tourists particularly well. Clifford, are these just one-off incidents or, or do they represent a trend? Well, I think um, where a lot of this comes from is that um, a lot of Chinese people are, are traveling abroad for the first time um, and they may not be as familiar with the local cultural mores as, um, as other travelers. Um, and there's also, um, because it's all new, I think um, they tend to be highlighted and blown up quite a lot over here, um, where there are very high standards of public behavior um, expected of you, and so I, I think that's partially what's what's driving this whole this whole current sort of cultural cringe at, at the behaviour of of the Chinese compatriots abroad. Part of it is clearly a cultural uh, misunderstandings. I mean, spitting, for example, is not acceptable uh, in in Western cultures, where where it is more acceptable in in China. Um, queue jumping. Yeah, I, I think. I think that the spitting um, aspect is one that has particularly horrified a lot of Westerners. It isn't a big deal over here, as you say. Um, it's Although there is a growing awareness of it, and people are being encouraged not to spit now in public in a way they never were before. And um, you, you see in Hong Kong, for example, that public spitting is now comparatively rare because the government there has, has been saying for years that spitting is, is a no-no. Um, and so the spitting is one, is one thing that's, that's uh, horrified restaurant owners in Paris, for example, who said people were spitting on the floor. But also people are told before they go away not to spit. They are given a list of instructions on how to behave um, and just to be aware of various things. And the tour guides who bring them around are saying the whole, are constantly telling them different things that they should be doing, how to behave. Um, so... Um, it's, it's sort of, in some ways, um, these must be, I think these are quite isolated incidents that tend to be maybe blown up a bit. But when they come back here, then, of course, everyone just thinks, oh, no, everyone's going away and, and bringing shame to China. And what about queue jumping? Is that something that is acceptable in, in China? Queue jumping is a tough one. I mean, it, it's <laughs> sometimes it's very hard to see whether queue begins and ends in China. It just kind of ebbs and flows. And, and people, I think, are, are kind of indifferent, really, to, to a lot of what we would where, you know, which would cause a lot of trouble in Ireland. You know, I'm just trying to imagine the situation in Brown Thomas um, <laughs> with, um, or in the Gallery Lafayette, as I saw um, myself a few a couple of years ago, where people just kind of just go up straight to the front of the queue. Often they're not looking to pay. Probably, people will go up the front and they'll ask a question, for example. But in the West, we're very used to, you know, a, a cashier dealing with us. And then, you know, you, you take your turn to ask a question as much as you will take your turn to, to pay. And what they're getting instead is you know, people just wander up and say, where can I find this? And, and it, it irritates people in the, in the West, and it turns, into, um, it turns into quite a big deal then. Is it ignorance or is it arrogance? I mean, is there, the, there are stories of, of people shouting at waiters or, or air, air crew uh, and abusing them and yeah. demanding immediate attention. Is that something that is, is um, um, a feature perhaps of a certain class of Chinese uh, traveller? I think it is. I think it's, I think what you have are examples of both, actually. I mean, I think some people genuinely do it out of ignorance. They they don't know that they're they're breaking the rules or it's, it's too much of a leap for them. You know, they've come from some part of rural China, suddenly where they find themselves in, in Grafton Street and they're expected to behave in a certain way. Although, as we all know, we can 
somebody from Traverse to be behaving badly in Grafton Street, wherever they're from. But um, you do also have people, though, uh, who are newly wealthy, um, and they're extremely wealthy, and they're used to suddenly getting everything their own way. Um, these are known in China as the Tuhao, which are the new, the new rich, and uh, very ostentatious. And they are prone to behaving very badly here, and they bring that same sort of bad behavior to... Um, to, on their holidays with them and, and yelling at waitresses, um, you know, expecting to have everything yesterday. A lot of the queue jumping in Gallery Lafayette, I can imagine um, that you, you're talking about the Tuhao kind of person there rather than, um, you know, the Nouveau Riche, rather than some um, farmer who's realizing their, their life's dream to, to go outside of China and visit Paris. So um, I think it's a, it's a combination of the two, but... The one that really annoys people here is is, is the nouveau riche um, person with these, you know, with, with that arrogant approach because they feel that really paints China in a very bad light. And are we are we seeing this with a rather Western perspective in the sense are are, are Westerners doing it to the Chinese when they when they're in China? Are there are there faux pas that we are prone to ignore? I think you do see a lot of um, you see a lot of bad behaviour by Westerners here. i not in some ways though. Um, you know, I think you see a lot more of the ignorance, and uh, you do see for many years because Chinese people couldn't leave, they didn't see, they didn't never really saw foreigners. Um, they were they would sometimes be amazed at say the amount of of alcohol that foreigners would consume, and and you know their behaviour then. I mean, these sort of things are are still quite alien. You still see a little bit of excessive drinking. You see a little bit of excessive drinking here um, around Chinese New Year, but it wouldn't be the same sort of cultural. Um, event that it is, you know, regular cultural event that it is in in, in the West, in Europe particularly. So uh, that would probably be one big area. Um, and people tend to be unwittingly rude, I suppose. Um, but I think because we tend more towards being very excessively polite, I think what you see more are cultural misunderstandings. I mean, often, I think a lot of Chinese people, for example, think that, that Westerners say, they excuse me and thank you and please too much. You know, they sort of don't really see why it needs to be, you know, every second word needs to be please or thank you because here people are just much more direct. And it isn't impolite. It's just that it's a, it's a different way of, of doing things. There are regular examples of tour groups coming here um, and misbehaving. Um, from Japan a couple of years ago, there was a big group, a big tour group that, that hired hundreds of prostitutes in, in, in southern China. Um, that was a big... A big um, uh, that called the big scandal. So certainly you do get bad behaviour um, he, uh, by foreigners here, um, but because foreigners are supposed to have been travelling that much longer, it's less of a of a new thing. So people, this is a new focus now for people here. And it's not only one sided. I mean, it, it's not all one sided. Uh, some travellers, uh, uh, Chinese travellers, are actually hard done by. There is a story of a Chinese tourist. Who ended up in a in a German jail? Yeah, that that was a funny story. I mean, that was, <clears throat> he 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 ended up yeah looking uh, as an asylum seeker when he, he just couldn't uh, he'd gotten lost. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And um, a lot of people here were very skeptical about that story. They were sort of wondering at his motives because. Um, but people can be, as I say, people are very harsh on their compatriots when they when they misbehave abroad, regardless of whether it's their fault or not. He was basically um, excoriated here for being, you know, how could he have been so stupid? He went into a police yeah, station to report uh, uh, that his wallet had been stolen. That's right, and he ended up, uh, they, they mistook him for an asylum seeker, and he ended up spending two weeks in a, you know, 
um, people are sort of saying here, well, why didn't he, why didn't he do something? You know, why didn't he? How did he manage to spend two weeks? And and um, some people are saying maybe he really was seeking asylum. Asylum. Maybe he was. You know, so the, he was he was fairly uh, harshly judged here, actually. But but yes, there are there are a lot of people who. Um, I mean, this this whole. Um, the whole development of the Chinese tourism market is, is a very, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I mean, it gives people here who are for decades and decades have never been allowed to leave the country are suddenly able to go away and have these incredible experiences. And that's a very positive thing. And also for, um, you know, tourism markets like Ireland, where, um, which are fairly saturated now and we're looking for new markets, um, they present a great, you know, the tourists present a great opportunity, and there's all these aspects of cultural exchange and and how when people experience overseas, it it, it enriches their, um, you know, how they behave back home, and so in China, so it's it's, it's a positive thing, and um, I think in, in, in sort of the broader message is just that um, that there are going to be a few um, hitches on on the road um, as. Um, as, as China's tourism market opens up, so it's it's not necessarily saying that the Chinese are, are behaving especially badly. Um, it's it's just that um, I think these are these are kind of new developments, teething problems. Listen, thank you very much, Clifford. Yeah. Thanks to Guy Hedgeco, Michael Jansen, Clifford Coonan, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com/podcasts.